0: Future Proof with Jonathan McRae.
1: proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland on News Talk.
0: Hello and welcome to Future Proof on News Talk. This is the show where we take a closer look at the world around us. I'm Jonathan McCrae. We start off the show, as always, by looking back at some of the more interesting stories from the world of science this week. And we're joined now by Dr. Lara Dungan, a medic and immunologist, and Dr. Shane Bergen of UCD. You're both very welcome. Lara, our first story has to do with surgery in the womb.
1: This is groundbreaking and I actually don't say that that frequently. So what these surgeons have done is they have done intrauterine surgery. And, and you may ask why on earth, why not just wait for the baby to be born? But this baby had a vascular malformation in its brain. So what that means is an artery has accidentally plugged itself into a vein. So it's like taking a high pressure hose and putting a balloon on the top of it. So the balloon will only last for a certain amount of time before it essentially pops. And if that isn't a vein in your brain, then you bleed out. And it's not so bad when you're in utero, but as soon as you're born, all of your vasculature changes. So you start to breathe in air instead of breathing in water, which you do in utero. And this will very quickly cause heart failure, stroke, and usually death for a baby within weeks. So you need to tackle it in utero, but of course you can't, because we can't perform surgery in utero, or can we? So what they did was they took a needle, they crossed across the mother's um, abdomen, it, through the uterine wall, and directly into the brain of this baby, and they did a thing called embolization, essentially where you block off the artery to stop its flow, to then allow the vein on the other side of it to return to a normal size. And it was successful. There was no bleeding. There was no complications. The baby was born two days later because as a result of the procedure, they ruptured the membrane, which is the the um, sac that the baby's in. So the baby was born then at 34 weeks plus four days, which is nearly term, two weeks off full term. And the baby is perfect. So they looked at it six weeks after birth. It's on no medication, nothing for heart failure, nothing for any problems. It's thriving. It's eating well. It's gaining weight. It's perfect. It's phenomenal. I just think this is incredibly exciting.
0: That's uh, extraordinary. I have to say, I didn't realise the baby was so, oh, I mean, old, but um, so close to, to full term. Is this something that would just be impossible to perform on, uh, on babies or, or fetuses that are, you know, 30 or 25 or 28 weeks?
1: Yeah, it definitely would. And it would be unnecessary. So I suppose the big change and the problems arise when the baby is born, because that's when everything changes and the pressures increase massively in the brain. And and you're probably nearly guaranteed that you're going to cause labor. Uh, you know, you're probably going to rupture the membranes um, and and you don't want to do this early. And you don't need to do this early because there doesn't seem to be any huge ill effect in utero. So 34, 35 weeks seems like the time that, that they decided was appropriate. And Clearly for this I know it's n equals one, but it's just it's so exciting and so phenomenal. This baby is perfect. And they they would have died.
0: But but how does a needle pierce through the did it go through the skull of the baby? Or like how? Yeah, literally. is 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 that um is that a difficult thing to do with a needle?
1: extraordinarily difficult. So they had to first manipulate the mother from the outside to turn the baby around so that its head was facing somewhere that they could reach it easily, which is already actually quite a difficult maneuver that obstetricians generally don't perform. Even if a baby is head up, they usually just deliver by section. They tend not to turn babies externally now. And then they performed it by putting a very small needle, the kind of needle I would put just into someone's vein, that that through the abdomen into the uterine wall into the baby's brain and then they were able to to embolize this artery from that and then withdraw the whole thing and everything was okay. That's
0: extraordinary. extraordinary. And, and while, it may not be, while it may not be something that will uh, will be available uh, around the world by the sounds of it, it's, it's an amazing um, achievement, just that one case alone. Fascinating stuff. Thanks, Lara. Our second story, Shane, has to do with sleep. It does. And how much of it uh, you
2: should have if you want to drive your car. Um, So like, I don't know about you, but I've certainly had nights where I just haven't slept for some reason and just have had to drive the next day. And um, some previously published work in the nature of science of sleep suggested that four to five hours was required if you're going to drive the next day and that to have anything less was equivalent to being over the alcohol limit for driving in terms of the effect it has on your performance. I'm willing to guess a lot of people drive with fewer than four or five hours sleep. Um, Hmm. And so this is a new project uh, that's uh, underway in Monash University in Australia that's looking to develop a blood test to uh, measure how much sleep you've had the night before. And uh, yeah, so they're going with the previously published kind of line in the sand of five hours and saying, can we measure using uh, markers in the blood whether someone has had uh less than five hours sleep and they know that sleep uh, contributes to uh, to deaths on the road after alcohol speed and most recently distraction uh, sleep is is or fatigue is the next big thing and so um professor claire anderson is leading a team there they've identified five biomarkers in the blood that can detect with 99 accuracy if someone has had no sleep in the last 24 hours and wow. these biomarkers come from all different parts of the body um, and they're not metabolic. So they're not linked to things like, you know, caffeine or anxiety or adrenaline. So if you've just had an accident, like, you know, something would spike in your blood, it's not, it's not going to be linked to those. So what they need to do is they need to work to validate the biomarkers. And then, I think this is the hard bit, they need to be able to develop a scale uh, and a reliable scale so that you can measure exactly to the nearest hour how many hours of sleep someone has had. Uh there is a lot of conversation about this as you can imagine around the ethics of doing this but it's it's fascinating that you know there could be another test for <laughs> for a driver uh to uh, to test whether they should be behind the wheel or not.
0: I mean, I imagine by the time this research gets to fruition, there will already be technological solutions to that. I know that there are um, there are monitors in a lot of modern trucks that monitor the eye behavior of their drivers and 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 prevent the car from continuing um, in the case of drowsiness. I also imagine the automation of cars are probably going to be quicker than this, but maybe not. Uh, it's it's an interesting question though, and also interesting that that we'd be able to determine how much sleep someone had by, well, presumably could be some some sort of blood test, I would imagine. So whether or not it ever gets into practice is one thing, but a fascinating uh, I, I, idea to explore.
2: It is. And one of the things I think is interesting here is the idea of four to five hours. This is based on on a publication before that's uh, that's like, you know, looking at thousands of people. So five hours might be plenty for me, but not for you. And so, mm. you know, uh, I know that similar arguments can be made around blood alcohol levels, but I, I, I'm not sure. I think that... Uh, sleepiness or fatigue is a far more difficult thing to define. Uh, so like I'm, I'm, I'm smiling because I know Lara is here and she's a medical doctor. So I'd say she's done far more important things, but fewer than five hours sleep. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but, but, but Lara, I mean, w- you know, driving is one thing, but uh, surgery or flying a plane, those things, um, are, are, we really do want to know that person is uh, alert and has slept properly. Um, do you see merit in that for the medical industry?
1: Well, it's interesting because I'm guessing this blood test is measuring damage of some kind, some sort of cellular damage. And that's already saying that this lack of sleep is causing damage. And in Ireland, it's legal to be working up to 24 hours. And I know that people do 36 hour shifts all the time and perform surgery here, illegal or not. And I mean, you're talking about driving a car after five hours sleep. We're talking about performing surgery after 36 hours on the go. It's insane. It's insane that it's expected of doctors and it is unsafe.
0: Yeah. Okay. Very interesting. Our third story, Lara, has to do with an extraordinary discovery of a new organelle. Uh, Let's start off with the obvious one. What is an organelle?
1: What is an organelle? So um, we all have organs in our body, but within our cells, they have their own organs, essentially. So the nucleus is probably the most famous that contains all the genetic material. There's also things like mitochondria that some people might have heard of because they can be important in disease. But there is a new organelle that has been discovered in the Rockefeller University in New York City from Professor Charles Zhu's team over there. Um, And we know that phosphate is an incredibly important mineral for our body. It essentially makes up the backbone of our DNA. We can't live without enough phosphate. And he looked at fruit flies um, and what he found was that there are ways to inhibit the absorption of phosphate in fruit fruit flies. You give them essentially a, a kind of a poison. It's called PFA and it stops them absorbing enough phosphate. And as a result, their, the amount of cells within their in, their intestine multiplies an awful lot, presumably because they want more cells to absorb more phosphate. But what he found was that there was a tip, particular type of gene that was expressed when there wasn't enough phosphate called PXO. So he tracked that gene to see where it ends up. And they found that it ended up in this very obvious, discrete little thing within the cell that looked to him an awful lot like an organelle that had never been discovered before. So he looked into it and he found that's exactly what it was. It was essentially a little platform that could absorb lots and lots of phosphate. And then whenever they were low in phosphate, these fruit flies, the little organelle would lies or burst and it would release all of its phosphate so that the animal would continue to have a supply and it makes so much sense because phosphate is so essential to life. You cannot multiply cells without it. So to not have a reserve seems almost insane. So evolution has taken care of that for the fruit fly. And now he's going to have a look and see if he can find this in other animals. But this is the first time something like this has been found.
0: Which is uh, which is amazing because when we think about the human cell, we know so much about how now to manipulate DNA. We, uh, we know so much about how they form, how they separate and so on. The idea that there are essential parts of the machinery that we haven't yet mapped is is fascinating.
1: Absolutely. It really is. And I mean, this hasn't been found in humans yet, but, you know, he is going to look, but it just shows. It's like the oceans, you know, there's a depth there that we, we still don't know anything about.
0: Our final story, Shane, has to do with body odour. Yeah, this is the depth
2: I do not want to know anything about. And this is body odour therapy. Yeah, I have to stress this is not peer reviewed, but it is brilliant nonetheless. And uh, it asks... Could inhaling a deep sniff or whiff of another person's sweat help to ease social anxiety? And um, research from Sweden suggests that it might. So they worked with 48 women between the ages of 15 and 35, all of whom have something called social anxiety disorder. And the normal uh, uh, approaches to that are, th- are talk therapies. Um, and so they proposed something different. They um, added a mix of mindfulness and then sniffing uh, body odor. And so mindfulness is asking someone to be present and focus on the, on the moment. And um, they found that um, over the course of, of two days, uh, people who just did mindfulness had a self-reported 17% drop in social anxiety. Compared to those who did mindfulness and sniffing sweat, they had a 39% uh, self-reported drop in anxiety and so this is the, the the premise of the the paper that they have submitted for peer review and i think it's very very interesting for lots of reasons um but i'm sure <laughs> i'm sure you have your own reasons too john
0: yeah but, but um the the first is social anxiety disorder and how we self report it of course um how well defined is that um medically any it's, idea it's it's not you see like these
2: there is there is this okay perhaps I'm going to speak out of turn here, but I think that our capacity t- to do science in physical medicine is often applied to mental health areas, and it doesn't really work. There isn't there isn't a defined measure for social anxiety disorder like you can go and measure the rate of something in your blood. So it's a construct. So we, we you know psychiatrists t- define this disorder, and they have to go and uh, figure out ways or proxies of measuring that. And then asking people to self-report these things when they're taking parts in study, et cetera, having only 48 people, doing it for only two days, etc. For me, this is methodologically very weak. And so uh, they're using science, but I'm not quite sure that they're coming up with
1: anything meaningful.
0: Lara, having heard the design of the methodology and as a a doctor, um, how do you feel about this sort of a study?
1: Look, I, I think there's merit in every study if you're going to do it. And I suppose that's the whole beauty of the peer review process. So let's see if it gets peer reviewed and approved. Even silly studies are worth publishing. You just have to know that sometimes they're silly
0: yeah um and that's not to say people don't suffer from anxiety of course um but of course have being able to define it uh, on a level that is applicable to groups when it's something that is very much individually felt uh, yeah. is, is tricky but it's not i mean it's not impossible to, you know we do have you know tools to treat psychiatric disorders that work so uh, and they're based on 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 this sort of approach So giving people this idea that you can just start sniffing
2: sweat and that's going to change it implies that there's something wrong with your brain as opposed to perhaps you've had a trauma in your life or something's going on that's causing this anxiety and it can be a bit of both but i i would suggest that people perhaps should stick to the
0: talking therapy all right um dr shane bergen from uh, ucd and dr laura dungan uh, thanks very much for joining us Now, you might think that measurement is a straightforward process, but how is it that we came to decide what a kilogram was, for example? How long is a meter exactly? And do we really need everything to be so precise? Well, James Vincent is the author of Beyond Measure, the hidden history of measurement from qubits to quantum constants. He joins me now. Welcome to the program, James. I have to say, this sounds like a really dull subject.
3: (laughs) Yeah, you would be uh, not at all surprised by the number of reactions I get along those lines. You go, oh, you tell people you've written a book, they go, ah, fabulous. What's it about? The history of measurement, their faces drop. Um, (laughs) It's an understandable reaction. But I mean, it was sort of a surprise to me whilst getting into the subject as well. But measurement really does suffuse everything in life. Uh, I mean, like everything in modern society is built upon on the back of precise and reliable measurements. And not only that, but the way we choose to measure and how we measure, I think really reflects um, how society operates. You know, measurement is a way of focusing attention. It's a way of deciding value. So how we measure things reflects what we value in life. So when we talk about measurement, we're really talking about a lot of things.
0: So when did we start measuring things and and when did that start to improve? Because there must have been fits and starts where our, our abilities, knowledge and tools began to improve.
3: Absolutely. I think there's sort of um, two strands to that. One is uh, improvements in the accuracy of the measurements we make, and one is in the improvement of the standardization of measurements, i.e. how consistent they are from one time to the next. Those two things are related, but they also sort of have separate evolutionary histories, as it were. So in terms of standardization, that's the sort of the the way society makes sure that a a, a meter is always a meter whenever you, you use it. That is something that sort of ebbs and flows with political control. So when we get the first settlements of uh, humanity in places like the Indus Valley, in the Indian subcontinent, in Mesopotamia, and the ancient Egyptians, these are when you get the first sorts of settled civilizations where you have a lot of people living together. Uh, you have uh, big um, architectural projects. These are both um, uh, you know activities that require consistent use of measurement. You know If you're going down to the market, you're trading for cloth or you're haggling for grain and whatever it is, you want to make sure that it's being measured out. Two shekels? Yeah, exactly. You, you say this is a shekel worth. Oh, God, it never is. You need to have someone who can say, yeah, it is or it isn't. And if you're building... Uh, Granaries. if you're building aqueducts, you need to have sort of consistent measurements that make sure what gets laid down in an architectural plan gets translated into a real working building. So whenever there are big civilizations, we have consistent units of measurements that begin to emerge and that are enforced by the authorities. Um, So one of the really famous examples of this comes from ancient Egypt, where you have the cubit. Now the cubit, um, it's from the Latin cubitum, and it is uh, the measurement from the elbow. Bow to the tip of the fingertip. Now, this was something that the ancient Egyptians uh, really standardised. They had sort of um, standard measuring cubits that had to be compared with the royal engineers, and they were incredibly important. You know, they were built. They were used to build the pyramids, for example. But they were also used to sort of um, sort out the Nile and its harvest. So, when I was writing the book, one of the things I went to go see was this amazing architectural item called a nilometer. Now, uh, I, I, can you guess what a nilometer measures? <laughs> The Nile?
0: Yes, exactly <laughs> <I guess>. so. <laughs> yeah.
3: Specifically, it measures the depth of the Nile's flooding. So, you know, ancient Egyptian society is built upon the flooding of the Nile because that's what creates the, uh, the wealth in terms of the crops that use, are used to sustain the ancient kingdoms. So the ancient Egyptian priests, for whom the flooding of the Nile was a sort of divine event, was controlled by the will of the gods, used to build these impressive, incredible measuring sticks. They were essentially huge uh, sort of stone pillars built into the Nile. And they would go in during the flooding season and see how deep it was. You know, was it 26, 27 cubits? And from that, they'd be able to predict whether there would be a good harvest. And from that, all sorts of, you know, decisions get made by the pharaoh about, okay, well, how many taxes can we collect? What, where do we direct this wealth? Are we going to go to war with the Hittites? Whatever wow. it might be. Um, so here is a measurement that is entirely integral to the proper functioning of society. You know, if if that measurement had not happened, the Egypt, ancient Egyptian society would have been much more chaotic. They would have not been able to predict what the future held. And I think that is the sort of, you know, it's a good example of the importance of measurement to operating large scale systems of humans, basically.
0: Now, surely even in ancient Egypt, they had basketball players and jockeys. So when you say <laughs> that the cubit was an elbow to fingertip distance, whose elbow to fingertip? Like, did they get pieces of stick or wood to fashion to have the, <laughs> the correct measurement? Because there's huge variability there, right? Absolutely.
3: So this is one of the big problems we have with measurement when we're looking at sort of the ancient history of it. So many of the first units of measurement, like the cubit, they come from the body. They are feet and hands. Nearly every sort of ancient culture, uh, you know, society that I looked at has a measurement of unit based on the foot and based on the hand because they're, they're obvious. Um, But as you say, there is a great deal of consistency in human morphology, in the size of humans. So in the Egyptians case, they actually had two different cubits, one of which was sort of the civic cubit, which was set by, you know, um, the internal uh, hierarchy of of, of priests who basically sort of functioned as a bureaucracy. One was a royal cubit, which was supposed to be defined using the body of the Pharaoh. um, But it is the you know it's the sort of the civic cubit that is more important because yes although it was originally and said to be derived from that basic measure of elbow to fingertip um, essentially they just standardized it and picked one and this is something you see happening many times so for example um, King David I of Scotland he gave us one of the earliest definitions of the inch Um, and I think oh. I've should have my dates in front of me, but I think this is around the 13th century. We're talking about 1283 or something like this. And he said, what you need to do is you need to take uh, the thumbs of three men one small man, one middle-sized man, and one large man. And then you measure the breadth of their thumb on the middle joint when pressed flat against a table. You add those together, and then you divide it by three. And that will give you the average measurement of the inch because it is, you know, based (laughs) from these different sizes. As a very simple approach, but it's essentially the uh, the methodology that was followed for hundreds, thousands of years, that you would try and take an average of the unit and then you would just turn it into a standard. And then it becomes about authority. It becomes about someone at the top saying, this is how long a meter is, this is how long an inch is. Don't argue with me.
0: Uh, what about the Romans? What have the Romans ever done for us?
3: <laughs> well, in measurement terms, they did a lot for us. So I mentioned earlier that the sort of consistent application and standardization of measurement, it sort of ebbs and flows with whether you have a strong centralized political control. This was true of a society like the ancient Egyptians, and it becomes true again with the Romans. So the Romans were obviously great ones for measuring. Roman roads, straight straight as you like, long as you like. They had the very consistent system for setting out their barracks whenever they you know, conquered a new territory and folded it in. So measurement was really... Uh, You know, it was a tool of empire and measurement is often a tool of empire. In fact, that's true in more modern examples, but they used it to set, um, you know, to set the pace of their conquest. Pace being the optimum, the optimal turn here, because a pace was one of the, uh, you know, standardized Roman units of measurement. So, for example, we have the mile and that was originally defined as a thousand paces. It was millis passe, which became mile over time. Another uh, famous Roman unit of measurement is the pound, which became, which was um, sort of inherited then by all these European countries. So it's really interesting when you look at the history of Europe and you look which countries have a version of the pound, you know, Germany, France, Italy, the UK, uh, And these are countries that have had a Roman presence, a strong Roman presence. So they came Mm -hmm. in, they standardized the units. That was good for society. Everyone liked it. You know, um, uh, Romans had, for example, a special class of... I guess you would call it a trading standards officer, who would go down to the market on a, on a weekend, whenever it was, and they would check and make sure all the traders were using using correct units. Nice. And this was something they did in order to benefit society. So whenever the Romans go, they left behind Roman innovations. That includes measurement.
0: So th- there are lots of other steps uh, along the way, but I suppose the, the two ones I want to to focus on are the, the scientific revolution. So when uh, we had an explosion of understanding of science, presumably this all changed um, and would change one more um, as recently as the past 15 years. But um, the big change presumably came uh, during the scientific revolution. What did we see in terms of measuring things like heat and weight and distance and so on?
3: Well, I think what we really see in the scientific revolution is less about measurement as units. And it's more about where measurement belongs in, let's call it this hierarchy of knowledge. So the scientific revolution obviously happens over a long period of time and there's lots of strands to it. But one of the main sort of one of the important strands in that is separating new forms of knowledge from what we'd inherited from the ancient Greek philosophers. So people like Aristotle and Plato. For those ancient Greeks, the idea of measuring the world to know something about it was a bit of a suspect notion. They thought because measurements were so imprecise and so inconsistent that measuring the world didn't really teach you anything new and stable about it. Instead, they were more interested in a philosophy of ideas um, and about you know thinking through the logical premises that would let you define truths about the world. The big thing that happens with the scientific revolution is um, measurement becomes more trustworthy because we have advances in a sort of um, technical and mechanical aspects so you have the invention of things like telescopes obviously that help you make more accurate um, measurements of the movement of the stars Um, this means that measurement takes this new sort of prestige to measure the world is to know something definite about it and if you think about um, you know one of the main tenets of uh, the scientific revolution or what would come out of it eventually, the scientific method. The idea that if you want to know something about the world, you need to do experiments. You need to create a, a scenario that is repeatable and consistent. And then you change one element of it and then you see what that changes about the outcome. That is impossible without consistent application of measurement. If you can't measure the parameters of experiment, you can't ensure it is consistent from one time to the next. So, you know, I gave the example of telescopes earlier. And this is one clear link to the scientific revolution, because, you know, you have the very slow and start and stop the cosmological revolution but a lot of the evidence which overturned the old model of the solar system in which everything was uh, orbiting around the earth you have the new uh, heliocentric model and a lot of that was um, uh, you know sort of justified based on the evidence of measuring the stars
0: that's really interesting and i suppose that um focus on the importance of measurement has continued since the scientific revolution and it, as i mentioned in the past couple of decades we've seen absolute revision of what we <laughs> define as a, a kilogram for example yeah. um as a second as uh, as as uh, as hot um can you take me through some of those um new revisions because they they can get really really crazily precise which of course is really important for modern science so um yes. we used to measure a kilogram by a, a sort of a magical golf ball in paris isn't that right <laughs> yes so for for
3: hundreds of years there was just a kilogram in fact there were there were two of these kilograms one was built and then it was judged to be a little inferior and they built another one but Every kilogram in the world was a copy of that kilogram, which was kept in a vault, uh, underground vault in in, in Paris, by uh, Bureau International de Poids et mesure the BIPM, which is the sort of governing body of the SI System International, which is better known as the metric system. There's always a lot of jargon in this. All you need to know was there was a kilogram in a vault. Every kilogram a copy of that kilogram. Um, this was the case for a long time for all the sort of standard units. You know, there was a meter. Bar That was just that every meter was a copy of. The thing with defining units of measurement in this way is that, as we know, physical matter wears and tears. It degrades in various ways. So even though you may think that you've built, you know, your meter bar or your kilogram out of the strongest metal, the most durable metal possible, um, there will be changes to it the kilogram that you mentioned was the most recent to get redefined and taken away from this physical basis. And that was based on the fact that they found out that it was losing weight compared to other kilograms. And that the amount of weight was minuscule. It was 50 micrograms, which is about the weight of a single eyelash. But if you're talking about these high-precision scientific settings, that sort of weight matters. Um, There's still not a settled theory about why exactly the kilogram was losing weight, but we think it was because there were perhaps tiny pockets of air trapped within the metal that sort of uh, filtered out of it over time. Hmm. The solution is to define units of measurement using constants of nature. These are uh, figures that we think are unchanging throughout time and space that have no well they do have a link to physical reality but not in the way a lump of metal does so these are things like the speed of light um, that one of the ones you mentioned is weight and this is based on something called the Planck constant now it's pretty tricky to define but the, the Planck constant um, uh, defines the relationship between the energy of a photon and its frequency and it's something that as far as we know is you know sort of I don't know. Uh, hardwired into the laws of the universe, the laws of physical reality, as far as we know. Um, and so, instead of measuring weight using a physical object, it's now measured using this very complicated uh, calculation that involves Planck's constant, uh, and also measured using some quantum electromagnetic constants as well, which I won't get into here.
0: So, so um, and that sort of approach by looking at constants uh, in in the the universe that has yeah. really helped us to find other things as well, like uh, heat, for example, which used to be um, measured against the baseline of the triple point of of water, the where yes. where water can exist as steam, liquid, and ice at the same time, two hundred something Kelvin. We now have a really complicated way of figuring out <laughs> that based on subatomic movement and so on. Yeah. Just to finish up how How important is it to get these things right when you're when you're measuring something that precisely like do we have examples in in history where a, a, a slight uh, change has led to disaster or, or why is it so important <laughs> to have it so precise?
3: Well, there are sort of two again two answers to this question one is based on consistency we need a system where everyone agrees with one another about what a measurement is you know if you're looking for examples of that and why it's a bad when there isn't consistency it, there are well there's lots uh, you know a famous one is in 1999 uh, when nasa sent a uh, a probe to mars it was the mars climate orbiter it cost 125 million dollars to make took 10 months to send it from earth to mars it hit Mars's atmosphere and it burned up, it collapsed, it just completely disintegrated. The reason was one half of the team at NASA had been working in metric units and the other half of the team at Lockheed Martin had been working in US customary units or imperial hmm. units. They'd been making the same calculations using different units and the result was disaster. So this is why I often think about measurement as a form of language. It's a type of communication. And if we speak the same language, the same units, then there will be less friction in how we speak. So. Consistency is one side of it. And then the other side is precision. Now, if some people say the history of modern physics is essentially looking for the next decimal place. The further we burrow down into the decimal place system, the more precise we get, the more accurate measurements we make, and the more we learn about the universe around us. You know, In terms of accurate measurements, they underpin so much about modern society, whether that is GPS, for example, the satellites that orbit the Earth and make sure your phone knows where it is and you know where you are, or whether that is something like the LIGO experiments, which are looking into the sort of the deep history of the universe and these the cosmological facts. Um, measurement supports all these. It doesn't just support them. It enables them. Without measurement, we could not look this far.
0: It's such a fascinating subject um, that that really shouldn't be by all rights, but it is the science of measurement that is explored in uh, James Vincent's brilliant book. It's called Beyond Measure, the Hidden History of Measurement from Cubits to Quantum Constants. Uh, James, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Jonathan love to know what you made of that um and uh, if you have any i'm sure there's people out there who have like really interesting facts about how things are measured you can send them into a science at talkcom the book is really good it's filled with lots of interesting anecdotes um, and very colorful uh, and very um, informative as well just to get to some of your comments from uh, last week's episode, uh, someone says, how accurately can AI decode what you're thinking? Like how much detail can it go into? Um, it's quite vague and you have to train it on an individual, but it gets concepts quite well. It wouldn't get detail like exact words. Another says, uh, reading brainwaves, exciting or terrifying? I think probably exciting. I can't really see this being used in a negative way the, way, the way it's done. So don't worry, no one's going to be pointing a machine at your brain and reading your thoughts just yet. And James says, I think we're too quick to focus on the potential pace and automation of AI, but we don't think about how many errors it can make, not to mention ignoring ethical considerations, etc. I would agree, uh, James. Uh, thanks very much for your comments. That's it from us on the podcast. Thanks to uh, Marisa Sullivan, Simon Keene, Steve Daunt and Hugo de Silva on Sand. We'll see you on Tuesday with more Future Proof, where we'll speak to uh, a zealot when it comes to living forever, Jose Luis Cordero. We'll see you then. In the meantime, stay curious. Future proof with Jonathan McCrae.
1: Proudly supported by Science Foundation Ireland. Sunday morning at 10.
0: On News Talk.